Our uh, passage for tonight's sermon comes from Galatians chapter 4. And uh, if you were here last week, you, you may remember I, I mentioned we're going to, we're camping out in these seven verses for three of the four weeks of Advent this year. And then here we are in our second week. And so I want to read uh, for us from Galatians 4 and then uh, tell you what we're going to look at tonight. This is Galatians 4, the first seven verses. This is the Apostle Paul. He says, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. So we're going to take a break from our our series in Mark. And uh, we're going to look at, uh, particularly at verse 5 tonight. We looked at verses 1 through 4 uh, fairly closely last week. And we're going to hone in on verse 5 tonight to look at something very specific. We're going to look at the work of the Son. Last week we looked at the gift of the Father. And verses 4 and 5 are grammatically tied together very closely. Uh, verse 4 speaks of God sending His Son and the Son's identity. And verse 5 speaks to the work that He came to do, which Paul tells us to redeem those under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And what I hope for us to, to show you is that the gospel is not less than forgiveness, but it's a whole lot more than forgiveness. And it's wrapped up in this biblical theme and idea called adoption. And as we're in the second week of Advent and here in this very passage, it speaks to God sending His Son. That when we we look at the New Testament, Advent very basically means coming or arrival. And there's two of them. There's two comings in the New Testament. There's Jesus' birth and then there's His return at the end of history. And... The question I'm asking us to reflect on together from this passage is, how do we live between the times? What do we find in the gospel that's even better than forgiveness? As we look back to Jesus' first coming and we look ahead to his return. And there are a number of ways to answer that question, but one that I think is often overlooked and arguably there is none richer in all of the scriptures, is this idea of adoption. God's adoption. His gift of welcoming, undeserving, rebellious children without a home, without a family, into his family. That's what I want to look at with you tonight. I want to look at that, uh, that idea with you right out of verse 5. I want to see three things together. I want to see, look at the, the recipients of this adoption. 
the cost of this adoption and then the goal of the of this adoption. So let's look first at the recipients. Look in verse 5. Paul here, he says that Jesus, the Son, came, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. This redemption, this adoption that Jesus has come to accomplish are for people who Paul calls who are under the law. And if you were here last week, we noticed in the very first, or in the verse just before, in verse 4, that this term, this phrase is used to describe Jesus. And so what Paul is doing right away is he is saying, Jesus has come. He was born of a woman, born under law, and he came for people under the law. That is, that the good news of the gospel is that Jesus starts where we start. That at every point and in every way, the identity of the Son, his entrance into this world and his first coming, maps on perfectly to where we find ourselves as men and women, boys and girls, in a world that is torn apart at the seams, who have hearts that are hard, that are self-absorbed, that are rebellious, that Jesus enters in as the beloved and perfect Son of God right into that mess. But it also means here, when Paul uses this word under the law again, it's a way of talking about our, our situation, that we are enslaved. And he picks up on that theme earlier again in verse 3 when he says, in the same way, we also were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. We looked at that last week, so I'm not going to go back into that very much, except simply to say this, that here we find ourselves as people who are incapable of being who we were made to be or doing what God calls us to do. Try as we might. That we, in other words, belong to the law of God. We are under the law and its demands. That we are incapable of meeting those demands. And there is no way out. At all. And we could look at a number of passages elsewhere in the New Testament. That this isn't just uh, for the Jewish people back in, in Paul's day. But this is for Jew and Gentile of his day. And it is for every human being today. That our fundamental situation before God are people who are held captive, imprisoned under His law. And it indicts us, it condemns us, and there is no other verdict but that. And therefore, here is what we need to see. That this is where all of our Burden, our anxiety, our desperation, our frantic pace of life comes from. It comes from this teaching of the scriptures that everybody is desperately trying to live up to some standard, whether it be of standards of religious morality or or irreligious virtue. Take your pick. The Bible's claim is that at the very core of your being, you are trying to justify your 
your existence. And uh, the playwright, George Bernard Shaw, he puts it like this. He says, the lives which have no use, no meaning, no purpose will fade out. You will have to justify your existence or perish. And, and the scriptures claim that that is everybody's situation. And that is usually the option that we pick. Is how can we justify our own existence? And I want to give you another anecdote to maybe help this land with us. I know that there is a new Rocky movie out. I think it's called Creed. And there's, I forget which Rocky movie it is, but one of the earlier ones, I think. And Rocky is, he's talking with Adrian in his sort of drunk voice all the time. And uh, that my Philly friends don't like it when I say that. They say that's just how people talk, but it sounds drunk to me. And, and he's, there's this moment in the movie where it's before this big fight. And he's talking to Adrian and he says, it doesn't matter if I lose this fight. Because all I want to do is go the distance. All I want to do, I just want to go the distance till that bell rings. And when it does... If I am still standing for the first time in my life, I will know I am not just another bum from the neighborhood. All he wants to do is go the distance. He just wants to be standing at the bell, and then he'll know he's not a bum. Now think for a minute. What's your version of all I want to do is go the distance, and then I'll know I'm not a bum. I'll know I'm somebody. Maybe it's... If I'm still standing after my kids are grown and they don't hate me and they're reasonably happy, then, then I'll know I'm not a bum. Or maybe it's a good job that if, I, if I'm competent in my profession and my coworkers and colleagues respect me and, and I'm moving up in my area of expertise, th- then I'll know I'm not a bum. Or maybe it's even you, you, you experience, you know, I have a good job and, and my, my family seems to be doing well. But then I have friends who just seemingly have this unending amount of time and energy to pour themselves into all manner of efforts and work for the common good. They serve on countless numbers of boards. And perhaps you feel the weight of that. That you want to be doing good. You want to be a catalyst for change in the world. And, and for you it would be, if I, just, if I was just able to be more like that person, then I would know I'm not a bum. That my life matters. Or maybe it's if I get accepted into the right school and the right program, on the right career path, then I'll know. That, I, that I'm not a bum. What is your version of that? And the Bible, I, I want to keep thinking about that, and I want to take it another layer deeper with you, and do that by looking at the parable of the two sons for a moment in Luke 15, where you have these two sons, the, the younger son says to the father, I want my inheritance, and the father agrees and gives it to him, and he goes off in this far country, and he squanders it all, and then he realizes at some point that the slaves, the hired hands in his father's house are eating 
and living better than he is. And so he determines to go home. And as he arrives home, he has rehearsed his speech to his father. And as he's arriving home, his father sees him far off and runs to meet him and throws his arms around him. And even as the son begins to rehearse his speech of his unworthiness, the father interrupts him and says, get the fattened calf, put the ring on his finger, put the robe on him and give him shoes. He never gets to even finish. But I wonder how many of you in this room are like the prodigal. And we'll call it the prodigal's suspicion. That when you look at that story, you get this impression that the prodigal is suspicious of the father's love for him. That he's not worthy. And he's correct. He's not worthy. But do you know what keeps him under the law, if you will, or enslaved? It's his focus and his suspicion, his obsession with his own failures, his own sin keeps him enslaved. It keeps him from seeing the Father's lavish love and grace for him. So here's a question for you. Are you so focused on your sin and failure that you can't see the love that the Father lavishes on his unworthy children? Let me put it differently. Do you, in a similar way to how the father does to this son returning, do you need God to interrupt your internal murmur of self-reproach? Your prepared speech of unworthiness. Have you ever thought that perhaps your unworthiness, your sense of unworthiness, is a, a veiled form of pride? That the love of God couldn't be that lavish or that extravagant. And it keeps you, it keeps you enslaved. It keeps you from seeing the robe and the fattened calf and the father running to you. Or let's take the elder brother's indignation in this story. Where the elder brother is, is this perfect illustration for us of those who seem the most worthy often have the hardest time believing the father's love for them so this is an opposite problem the younger brother can't see and enjoy the father's love because his unworthiness is all that he sees whereas the older brother can't see the father's love because his worthiness is all that he sees So the elder brother's attitude is is this. He says, look, these many years I have served for you and I never never disobeyed your command. See here, the older brother is geographically close to the father. He has everything that the father has and yet he's the dutiful, obedient son. And the question for us is, are you so focused on your obedience in getting the Father's things that you can't hear the Father saying? And this is what the Father in the story says to the older brother. Son, you are always with me. All that I have, 
All that is mine is yours. So you see, here's, here's what we have. Which attitude best describes you as we look at the recipients of this adoption as people who live under the law? There are two ways to live that way. You can either focus on your sin and failure or focus on your obedience and your performance. There are just two ways to do the same thing. And here Paul, in this passage, is telling us that the gift of this adoption, it's the remedy to both problems. That adoption, as the Bible talks about it, is the gift of the Father, of His lavish grace, that we need in order to be free from our own shame, our own sense of unworthiness, accurate as it is, and our own sense of worthiness of our performance that we base our justification on, our standing, our acceptance. So the purpose of taking time to look at at the recipients of this adoption is to help us to see the path out from under the law. It comes from the Father and not from us. And we must look to what kind of love the Father has given to us. And in fact, in 1 John Chapter 3, he writes, Look what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And it's, it's fascinating that in that passage, when the word tra- translated what kind of love, that phrase what kind of, can also be translated from another country. And, and the point that uh, I think John is making here is that the point is that the love of the Father is otherworldly. It's unlike anything you and I have ever experienced, could ever give, or could ever possibly think of. It is beyond compare. But here's the thing. It cannot be earned. It's a gift. But that doesn't mean that it doesn't come at a great cost. Which brings us to the second point to the cost of this adoption. Look here in verse 5 again. At the very beginning, in verse 4 it says that God sent forth His Son, in verse 5, to redeem. That word redeem is all over the Bible. It's all over the Bible in the Old Testament, and it's all over in the New Testament. And it simply means to deliver someone, to buy them out of a situation that they cannot free themselves from. It means to release a slave from his or her owner by paying the slave's full price. Here the slave master is the law in Paul's argument. And Jesus pays our full price to God's law. He completely fulfills all the demands on us. And so then he is able to free us from it. That's what's wrapped up in this one word, to redeem. That Jesus, He comes and He delivers you out of a situation that you cannot free yourself from. But not only that, He doesn't just redeem you, He pays the debt. And He Himself is the payment. He doesn't come to redeem us and offer something else in payment. He comes to both deliver 
and pay himself. So God sent his son not only to redeem us, but to pay the debt himself. And and this is something I want you to see. If you want something really bad, you will pay almost any price to get it. And I want you to think with me for a moment. How much must God want you, rebellious child though you are, if he sent his son to redeem you and buy you back? You will pay a great amount of money for something that you really, really want. That you love and cherish. And the same is true for God. Listen to how Peter, in 1 Peter, he says this. He says, you were ransomed, not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, but with precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb, without blemish or spot. You know what he's doing? Peter there is comparing the precious blood of Jesus to all the riches that you and I might see. All the earthly riches and goods that you can imagine. And this payment of Jesus sent by the Father is more than all of that. All of those things are perishable. They're not going to last forever. But the blood of Jesus is imperishable. It's the eternal covenant of God with His Son to redeem and to buy back. See, the cost of this redemption, it teaches you how valuable you are to God. And it's not because you in your own person are lovely. It's because Jesus is beautiful. And in the Scriptures, what we have is a God who through Jesus loves Ugly, rebellious people. It's, it's mind-boggling. It's the mystery of the gospel. And listen how, as one writer puts it, when we say that our adoption means that all our debts and obligations are canceled, we do not mean that they have simply been nullified by divine fiat. Rather, they were put to the account of God's Son. He took the bill of debt to the cross and nailed it there. His death wrote the word canceled over all our debts. So when we are adopted into God's family, it is only through Christ and at infinite cost to Him. You see, the cost of Jesus coming to redeem, it teaches us how utterly incapable we are of getting out from under The law of God. How utterly incapable we are of saving ourselves. You simply can't pay it. And at the very same time, how absolutely loved you are in Jesus. That he would not spare his own son. That God would send him the very precious blood of Christ to rescue us. So what is the result of that? This redeeming work that he teaches us here. Romans 8 verse 1 is something that you need to tell yourself every day. That because of Jesus, 
There is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The law of God, you are no longer under the law of God in Christ. God no longer looks at you based on your performance, based on your obedience, based on how well you are doing or not doing. When he sees you, he sees Jesus, the perfect son. He sees his righteousness. He sees the quiet, gentle word of grace and mercy and forgiveness. When you find yourself incapable of saying anything other than hurtful, angry words. God sees you as he sees Jesus. You see, here is freedom from justifying your existence. Here is freedom from living your life just so you go the distance, just so you can know you're not a bum. This redemption is freedom from proving yourself. It's also freedom from loathing yourself. It doesn't mean that you yourself are as you should be. But what it means is there is now hope. You are no longer under the law. You are freed. There is grace. There is mercy. There is forgiveness. There is one who has done for you what you cannot do for yourself. And this work also is where you get assurance. An infallible assurance that your debt is wiped clean. You see, the quality of your obedience is no longer what defines you. It's Christ's obedience and His payment in your place that defines you. All of your sin is transferred to Jesus. All of His righteousness and His obedience is transferred to you. You need to swim in that good news again and again every day. You need people to tell you that every day. And as liberating and as beautiful as the redeeming work of Jesus really is, it's even better than that. And in fact, if we don't take into the very center of our beings the second part of this, of verse 5, of what Jesus came to do, we will continually fall back into the habit of basing your acceptance with God on your performance. Let me show you what we mean here by looking at the goal of adoption. See, the first reason that God sent His Son was to redeem you. But then look in the end of verse 5. He came so that we might receive adoption as sons. See, the phrase adoption as sons here literally means to be placed as a son. One writer describes it like this, that this is a legal term in the Greco-Roman world. A childless, wealthy man could take one of his servants and adopt him. And at the moment of adoption, that slave ceased to be a slave and received all the financial and legal privileges within the estate and outside in the world as a true son and heir. Though by birth he was a slave without a relationship with the father, he now receives the legal status of a son. 
It is an entirely new life of privilege. That's the idea that Paul has in mind here when he says, talks about the word adoption. Adoption as sons. And the important thing I want you to notice, Paul is trying to say here, adoption is not a change in nature. It's not a change in your heart. It's not a change in your lifestyle, even. It's a change in status. This is fundamental for you to understand. The adoption in the Bible, it's a legal act of God who says, I'm going to take this person, this sinner, this rebellious child, who is a slave. You are a slave to your own self-justification. God says, I'm going to take you and I'm going to declare you my child. And in that declaration, I am going to give you all of the rights and the privileges, the status, the inheritance of a child of the living God. That's what Paul is talking about here. It is a legal declaration. Now, about how good a son or daughter, this is not about how good of a son or daughter that you are. It's about the father's love, the disobedient children. And I, I, some of you have I've used this example or illustration before, but I'll use it again here. In, in, in our house, I don't believe this personally in my own Christian life. And it's hard to practice even as a father. And here is how I try to practice this with my boys. That when they disobey... And they don't do what they're supposed to do. And I have to sit down with them. And I have to discipline them or talk to them. The question I always ask is, why does daddy love you? Why does daddy love you? And the only right answer is because I am your son. Have you ever experienced God say that to you? Have you ever experienced in the depths of your being, when faced with your own failure, your own weakness, and you know you're in the wrong, and you wonder, will I ever be more than a bum? Have you ever had the experience of God, through His Word, say to you, the only reason I love you is because you're my son? Because you're my daughter. I don't love you because you do what I tell you to do. Because if my love for you was based on that, we could never have a relationship. This is about God's love for us. His declaration. Him changing our status. And I wonder for some of you, perhaps, all of this language of Son and sonship, it, it might maybe, maybe it might grate against your sensibilities a little bit. It might puzzle you about, okay, so I, I think I understand what you're saying, but what about, what about women? What about daughters? Does, does this really apply? And I think it's, it's a very understandable question. And in fact, we even see elsewhere in the New Testament, we see even in, in John's gospel and his letters, he uses the words, the phrase, children of God. So why not just use that? Maybe that'd be a better 
way to communicate this idea. But I want to, here's what I want to say. We shouldn't do that. We need to let Paul's usage of the word son and sonship stand. And here is why. Because if we don't, we will miss the radical nature of this teaching. Because in most ancient cultures, daughters could not inherit property. Therefore, son, it literally meant a legal heir, which was a status that was forbidden to women. But notice what Paul is saying here. The gospel tells us that we are all sons of God in Christ. We are all heirs. And in in the same way, the Bible describes all Christians together, including men and women, as the bride of Christ. That what, what I want you to see here is that God, in His Word, uses metaphors to describe His salvation. And He applies them to both men and women. Pretty even-handedly, as you look at the New Testament. But what I want you to see here is that if, if what Paul is saying is that men are part of His Son's bride, when He talks about the bride of Christ, and that women are His sons, His heirs. And if we don't let Paul call Christian women sons of God, we miss how radical of a gift that this really is. And really what I want you to see is that in the end, every metaphor in the Bible to describe God's salvation, it orbits around the Son. It orbits around Jesus. And it's meant to help you more deeply and fully understand what a relationship with Him is. Involves and what it looks like. And so then how can you be sure then of this adoption of God's lavish love for you? And I think we, we find the answer to that in, in Paul's letter to, to, to the Romans. At the very beginning of that letter in chapter 1, what we, we, Paul writes that Jesus was declared to be the Son of God through His resurrection. When you think about this for a moment, that the resurrection of Jesus is God's declaration that Jesus is the Son of God who was born of woman, born under the law. So then how do you can you be sure that you enjoy that sonship, that relationship? The only way to enjoy that is if, if you are connected to to that son through faith in him. You see, here is the eternal son who went into the far country, as it were, for our sake. And he has returned from death. And he has been welcomed by the Father. And by God's grace, that is the same welcome that the Scriptures hold out to you through faith in Jesus. Now, why is this so important for us to talk about? Why spend uh, these three weeks reflecting on this passage together? I think it's, it's all too common uh, for, for folks to, to think of the gospel only in terms of pardon or forgiveness, but not also in terms of new rights and privileges in the family of God. Or as, as one writer put it, uh, we, we often think of the gospel as the transfer from us of our sins, but not as the transfer from Jesus 
his rights and his privileges to us. And I, I think it's, it's helpful to think of it this way, that if that's how we think about this, we're actually only half saved by grace. Because what inevitably happens is you will fall back into the habit of relating to God based on your performance. That Paul here wants you to realize that this gift of adoption is what can loosen the hold of your own performance on your life. And maybe give you a, a closing example or illustration. Jesus' salvation is, it's, it's not only like receiving a pardon from jail or prison or, or, or death row, where you're free, you, you can leave, you're, you're on your own. But what happens is, many of us think that that's it. That we've been freed, we're left on our own, and now it's up to us to make our own way in the world. But the gospel is better than that. It doesn't throw us back on our own efforts to make something of ourselves. It's better than that. We're not only freed, but we are welcomed. We are welcomed in. We are given honor and status. It's as if you've been released from death row and now you've been given a brand new resume that's guaranteed to get you a good job. You've been given an inheritance, a bank account from which to rebuild a new life. Everything you need to have new life is promised and given to you in Jesus. It's better than forgiveness. It's a welcome into an entirely new relationship with the Father. And unless we remember this, we'll be anxious and even despair when we sin or we fail. This is, in this one verse, in verse 5, the good news of the gospel. That Jesus has come to redeem. And even more than that, he's come to welcome you in to God's family, to make you one of God's children, to change your status, to welcome you home. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we ask that you would, you would work these dual truths of what Jesus has come to do into the very core of our being, that you would help us to look at Jesus, to look at his work to, to deliver us, to look at the cost of what it cost him to deliver us. And that the goal of this, adopt, this, this redemption is, this, is adoption. It's a new identity. It's a new family. It's a new father. It's a new home. Where we, we are loved in the Son. We are held secure. And there is nothing that can separate us from your love in him. Please, by your spirit, make those truths sink in. And I pray that through them we would find joy. That we would be able to sing and delight and rejoice in this Jesus, your son whom you sent. For it's in his name that we pray, amen.